0: I'm Jenny Hill, founder of MFW. A few days ago, I sat down with amazing feminist Mona Altahawi for a warts and all chat about feminism, swearing, patriarchy and women's anger. Enjoy. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. It's incredible. We're really humbled and um, I know there's a lot of, uh, we call them witches on our page who are just really in awe of everything that you do. Especially since you came to Australia and made such a splash with the with the Q and A program, that made you. Um, I know. I know there's people in Australia who uh, don't really understand you or some of what you said, but for all the people who follow the witches, it's about 120,000 people now. Um, you're an absolute hero or shiro. Um, I just want to start by acknowledging that we're on the lands of um, the traditional custodians of the lands that we're on and pay our respects to the uh, elders, um, past, present and emerging. Uh, I think we're both uh, speaking from lands that were never officially ceded. So I want to clear that one up for a start. Um, Let's start, Mona, by talking about swearing because that's one of the things that uh, you and the Mad Witches have in common. Um, You've probably heard the story about how the Mad Witches started. Do you know that story? Did we talk about that? Uh, So uh, the Australian Immigration Minister, a guy called Peter Dutton, um, sent a text message about a woman journalist to another politician, another male politician, um, but he accidentally sent it to the woman journalist instead. And that message called the journalist a mad fucking witch. So that's how MFW started. Um, And that obviously got out in the media and it it was a big joke. So obviously the Facebook page is about, you know, taking back the power of swearing, the power of women being witches, uh, to, to not use the word witch as an insult um and and just to embrace that you know women have the right to anger the right to swearing and i'm fairly sure that you're going to agree with some of those sentiments as well
1: (laughs) so why do you use swearing well jenny first of all um thank you for having me and welcome to everyone and i'm going to start in the way that i start everything you know in the before times when i was in a hole full of people or anywhere else i would always say hello My name is Mona Altahawi. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and this is my declaration of faith. Fuck the patriarchy. (laughs) So I always begin everything like that. I establish that as my declaration of faith, you know? And I do that for several reasons. One, because I understand how rare it is for a woman to be at a podium anywhere. Two, how even rarer it is for a black, indigenous, or woman of color, such as myself. Three, a woman of Muslim descent, again, such as myself, and a woman with all of those identities who gets up on that podium and very unapologetically says, fuck the patriarchy. All of that for me, uh, you know, over the years, the more and more I say it, the more I recognize the power, the political power of profanity and the necessity of profanity, because I consider swearing and profanity and vulgarity in language, you know, it's called various things, depending on where you are in the world. I consider all of that a form of civil disobedience. It's like the verbal equivalent of civil disobedience. So I go out there and I'm in, I am in—I insist on turning upside down civility and politeness and niceness because we have to recognize how all of those things work to uphold the power and the primacy of patriarchy, of racists, of basically the men in power. And in Australia, they would be white men and they're exactly the group of people who got that episode of q and the now famous episode of q and banned for many reasons, including the 10 times I said fuck.
0: Yeah. And
1: yet, there's been
0: things on that show um, you know we could we could both list them, you know the time when we had an an Australian government minister openly denying climate change, um, you know, with the number of lies, misinformation, uh open sexism, open racism yeah. uh, on that show, and yet it's you saying, "Fuck, that's the problem you know right,
1: just right I mean it, there, there is nothing polite about racism, there is nothing civil or polite about misogyny, there's nothing polite about violence against women and queer people. None of these, there's nothing polite about poverty. You know, none of these things are polite or civil. They are the true profanity, but saying fuck or swearing is considered so awful and so out there that we have to be polite even when our humanity is being called into question, even when our dignity is being squashed, and mm. we have to be polite to those who are basically threatening our humanity. And I say, fuck that. I will mm. not be polite to anyone who doesn't acknowledge my full humanity.
0: Mm. And that's um, one of the things I've learned in the last few years is that that silencing of people for, for profanity or for anger is actually it's a, it's a form of abuse, isn't it? That's what, you know, I've done some research into, you know, domestic abusers, family abusers, that kind of thing, and one of their tactics is to sort of turn anger back on, you know, someone is is being abused or is even being belted or whatever, and as soon as they complain about it, the abuser
1: turns that back on them. It's exactly the same tactic, isn't it? It really is. It's another form for patriarchy to control us, you know, like the control. When we look at women, whether we're talking about cis women or trans women, when we look at the ways that we are controlled and shrunk, you know, the space that we can hold is a shrunken space. And that kind of shrinking also extends to our language. And I always remind people that depending on the intersections of oppressions within which we fall, the more shrinking happens to us. So when you're talking about a black indigenous woman of color, when you're talking about a working class woman, when you're talking about a disabled woman, when you're talking about, you know, all the various ways that patriarchy oppresses us, the more... Under, the, the more oppressions that we fall under, the more we are controlled, whether our bodies controlled or our language is controlled. So you look, you know, I often hear from women who write to me and say, you know, as a black woman, I can't swear as freely As a white woman or as a working class woman, I have to be really careful to be extra polite in my language because of the ways and the stereotypes and the forms of control that working class women are subjected to. So it's a really interesting kind of lesson in the ways that patriarchy and its various oppressions are used against us, including in the ways that we can and cannot express ourselves. So is your solution or one of your solutions that you
0: think women should try to express that a lot more? I mean, obviously some women have boundaries of, of their own safety and, and things like that, but you're saying that women should try to be more angry, try to be, try to swear more, be more unapologetic. And yeah. how, do you, how, do you, how do you suggest that women do that, women who are frightened to do that or who feel
1: like they can't? Right. Well, you know, in my book, The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls, I have the first chapter is anger. So like the first sin, or obviously, it's not a sin. If anything, these are the seven virtues. But, you know, I call them <laughs> sins because yeah. these are things, these are attributes and qualities that women are not women and girls and also queer people. But I'm, I'm focusing when I say women and girls, I also talk about trans people, not just of course. Women. Yeah. Because so these these are attributes that women and girls are discouraged from. We're not supposed to be that or want to be that. And the first so-called sin is anger. And it's not the only sin because you can't begin and end with anger because anger in and of itself will just eat you up. It, it can be corrosive. Anger is just like the first step I say, you know, the black lesbian poet, Audrey Lorde said, uh, likened anger to energy. It's almost like a fuel for your, for your engine, you know, because we as, especially as women and girls, we are encouraged to turn anger inwards rather than express it outwards. And so you'll often see that instead of being angry at the, the injustice that we have every right to be angry at, We turn it inwards. We break the anger in girls. It's a very healthy expression. Girls are born with as much anger as boys are, but we break it in girls. We make them nice. We make them polite. And what ends up happening is that that energy called anger, it ends up being turned inside into sadness, into anxiety, into self-harm, into eating disorders, into all of those things that hurt them rather Mm. than challenge the injustices that, that anger should be directed at. So the first sin is anger. And then profanity is sin number three, because after anger comes attention, because you want people, you know, we're discouraged from saying, hey, listen to me, pay attention to me. We're called attention whores, you know? And I'm like, yeah, I'm a whore. I'm all kinds of whore, including yeah. attention whore, you know? Yeah. So the, the third sin then is profanity. And, and what I do with profanity is I say that, All those oppressions, none of those oppressions deserve politeness. And patriarchy uses respectability and tone policing as a way of basically saying, this is a good woman and this is a bad woman. And so I encourage encourage women and girls to embrace swearing, to embrace profanity and basically say, fuck you. I will not be polite because your misogyny is not polite. Your racism is not polite. Poverty is not polite. So I'm asking basically to focus what the real profanity is and what, what is really rude, you know? It is rude for Donald Trump to put people when he was president in concentration camps on the border. It yeah. is profane and vulgar and much worse than swearing for Australia to have migrants and asylum seekers in offshore camps, you know, when yeah. they end up throwing their lips together. That yeah. is much more rude and uncivil than my saying fuck on your television, you know? <laughs> um, the other day we asked um, um,
0: people for some questions, so I do have some questions that, that were sent in. Um, what One of the first questions was, it was a very common question, what made you an activist? I mean, I believe you were brought, brought up, we had a little chat the other day just for everyone to know and we talked about how we were both brought up in a quite religious households different religions um, but um so we were both brought up with the expectation I think that women would be sort of good and nice and and things like that uh you know coming from the the religion that we we're in what what made you willing and able do you think to to break out of that and how long did it take right.
1: <laughs> Well, you know, I was born in Egypt. And I think before I even recognized what, you know, gender equality or feminism or any of that was, uh, one of the earliest lessons that I got at home, and yes, I was born to a Muslim family that was an observant Muslim family, but I also got a very early lesson from my mother in that she and my father met. So university and higher education, all all education in Egypt is free. And my parents come from like solidly middle-class families, we don't come from from wealth. So my parents met at medical school, which like I said, is free in Egypt. And they, they married very soon after they graduated and then everything they did in their career, they did together. So they got their master's degree together, again free in Egypt because education is free. And they both got government scholarships from Egypt to go to London to get their PhDs in medicine. So when I was seven, we, we, uh, we moved to London. And one of the earliest lessons that I got was my teachers, most of whom were women at the height of second wave feminism in the mid 1970s in London. They kept asking me, what does your father do that brought you to London from Egypt? And I would always reply really proudly, my mother and my father brought us to London, you know, yeah. because they both got scholarships to come to London. So yeah. even at, at the time, you know, I didn't put, Two and two together, but I realize in retrospect now that they had such low expectations for an Egyptian Muslim woman, which is my mother, you know, and there is this Egyptian Muslim woman who is studying for a PhD alongside her husband in London. So I realize in retrospect now that I grew up in a home where those low expectations didn't apply. My parents were shoulder to shoulder you know, when yeah. it came to their professional careers. And then when I was 15, we moved to Saudi Arabia, and that was such a shock to my system. I say that I was traumatized into feminism. Now, where where like ethnicity and religion come in is that I recognize I learned in Saudi Arabia that the Islam that is practiced there is very different than the Islam that is prevalent in Egypt. It's a much more conservative, much more patriarchal Islam. Than in Egypt. So my mm-hmm. mother couldn't drive anymore because back then women oh, couldn't wow. drive in Saudi Arabia. Now that, you know, that law has has ended thanks to Saudi feminists, you know? Yeah. So I recognized in Saudi Arabia that it was a very, very different atmosphere than Egypt. And that feminism was going to I fell into a deep depression because of just this, like this all-prevailing misogyny. And feminism truly saved my mind, Jenny. And it was feminism by women from my ethnic and faith background. So I discovered feminist books by Egyptian feminists and a a particularly well-known Moroccan feminists who showed me that these were Arab Muslim women or North African Muslim women who are feminists. And that really, like that brought the word feminist into my mind. And so I I, I recognized something was very wrong when I was 15. I was traumatized into, okay, fuck this shit. And then I found the word for it in these feminist books when I was 19 at my university in Saudi Arabia. Wow, that's fascinating.
0: And you never look back from that. So did you actually start you know, swearing and being angry and those sorts of things at that age? Well,
1: I I would say I started being angry at that age. Started being angry. yeah. Yeah. The swearing took a bit longer. You know, I I don't think I was swearing when I was 19. I was a very good girl. Oh, my God, Jenny, (laughs) I was such a good girl. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm trying to work
0: out um, how, like, I swear a lot on the page obviously when i write posts and stuff because that's what mfw is all about Mm -hmm. but i don't do a lot a lot in real life which is sure socialization i mean if i'm i'm a bit of a jekyll and hyde if i'm if i'm angry on the page there's no reason why i shouldn't do it in real life but i don't think i've got your bravery so i'm trying to work out how you how you make that leap into that bravery of just being fuck you bastards like you know in person as well as
1: In writing. (laughs) Well, well, you know, it's a journey, you know, it developed. So, like, you know, my anger was there when we moved to Saudi Arabia because I just thought it was so unjust. The way that women and girls were being treated was just so unjust. And it was wrong and it had to end. And then when I moved back to Egypt at the age of 21, so I was away for 14 years. It made me even angrier to see. So in Egypt now, the real shock to my system was the poverty and the corruption and the political tyranny. So I moved back to Egypt when I was 21, and I and, and that was in 1988. And I, I would go to university, to, I was studying to be a journalist, and I, I became a freelance journalist as I was studying. And I think that, that journalism, that, that being out there and reporting on all of these injustices, like the poverty, you know, more than half at the time, more than half the Egyptian population was living on $2 or less a day, you know? So there was rampant poverty. And mm-hmm. I remember I used to go home because I lived with uncles and aunts and I used to always ask them, where is the revolution? And I'm saying that now where, where you know, we're now marking the 10th anniversary or of our revolution in Egypt. So that, that just, that kind of like loosened me up even more. The anger just turned into this rage against injustice and poverty. And, I, and you know, and I encountered the horrific... Uh, torture that the Egyptian regime and its police forces um, subjected Egyptians to, you know, women and men. One of the earliest stories that I covered as a journalist about torture was the torture of a woman in her 60s because she refused to testify falsely against someone that the police told her was a car thief. She said, I've never seen him steal anything. They abducted her and took her to a police station and sodomized her with the leg of a chair. Now, I'm sorry if I'm triggering anyone. You know, well I should do trigger warnings when I say these things, but reporting on things like that enraged me even more. But you know, it also, Jenny, it also showed me this very ordinary working class Egyptian woman who lived in Southern Egypt, who believed that she deserved justice and she deserved dignity you know and when you see this is this is a woman who either had very very basic education or had never learned to read or write so this has nothing to do with being elite or from the upper class or being educated this is a human being this is a woman who believed that she deserved justice and she did not deserve to be treated like that. And her friends told her, go to Cairo and meet with this human rights organization because they will get you justice. So the more I, the more of a journalist I became, the more I was reporting on these injustices, the more it really loosened up all of the good girl in me. And I was like, <laughs> this shit. Ooh, why am I being a good girl? And who does being a good girl hold up? It holds yeah. up the systems of oppressions that lead to this woman in her sixties being raped and tortured for the dictator and his police, you know? So I was like, fuck this shit. So the older I got, the more of a journalist I became, the more I was like, fuck you, all of you.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think for me, um, I trained as a teacher, but for most of my working life, I've run a business in advanced driver training. So mostly working with companies to help their drivers, you know, learn how to control skids, not not teaching them to drive, but teaching them how to be safer after they've learned to drive. Mm-hmm. And the sexism that I encountered over the years doing that, just I wasn't really brought up as a feminist. I was brought up in a very uh, a lower working class family in the country um, and was lucky enough to, to, to get an education by, you know, by working really hard to put myself through uni. But over 25 years of running a a driver training business, um, just, I mean, I was speaking at a conference in London in 2010 and a guy threw a can of Coke at me, full can of Coke, saying women aren't allowed to talk about driving. Um, You know, I've, I've been working in classrooms with guys where, you know, they walk in in the morning to do a course with my company and they thought I was the tea lady you know, like helping them make a cup of tea. And then I'd stand up the front and start lecturing to a class of, say, 30 guys. You know, a lot we did a lot of apprentices, a lot of salesmen, so our classes were predominantly males. And their faces would just go white when they realised I was the trainer. People would get up and men would get up and just walk out and refuse to be trained by me. And that happened over and over and over again for 25 years. And I think obviously none of that is as, is as bad as the abuse that you're talking about. But I think all of us who, who are, who are trying to to do something in whatever sphere, there seems to be something in our heads that, that clicks a button, doesn't there? Cause I, I just like, you know, I'm working alongside this male instructor. I'm actually better than him. I'm probably twice as good as him at my work, but you won't take that from me just because i'm presenting as a woman you know <laughs> it's just yeah i find it, it hard. outrageous mm-hmm. it's yeah it's just hard to get what it, whatever it is that you're doing when you treat it as less just mm-hmm. for being woman or a woman or just for being of color or just for being queer yeah. it, the the enragement of it i think that's always been in my head as you know the injustice but uh um it takes a while to to ramp up,
1: doesn't it? Just, yeah. It really does. And you know, the older you get, the more you realize, like in all of these spaces that we're talking about, that cisgender, heterosexual men, and it's you and you know they're they're usually able-bodied and you know, they mm. come from affluent backgrounds, you know, they they're socialized with a level of entitlement that is just astonishing. Yeah. You know, they're told the yeah. world is yours. Yeah. That they, they own our bodies, they own our time, they own our attention, they own our affection. And if they don't get those things that they're socialized into believing is basically their natural birthright, mm. that's when they hurt us. And that's mm. when the rage comes, you know? Mm. And it's just it's, it's fucking unbelievable. It's yeah. like, no, I yeah. do not owe you my time. Yeah. I don't owe you my attention, you know. Yeah. The world and they don't is even mine as well. Yeah, and they don't, they don't,
0: the, probably one of the biggest things that's enraging is you can't explain it to them, can you? They don't, you can't see what you can't see, what you've never experienced. That's
1: why yeah. the education's yeah. so hard. Well, that's why I tell them, you know, when, when people talk about patriarchy, I tell them it's, it's like asking a fish what is water, and the fish is going, what are you talking about? What's water? Because of course the fish never stops to think, oh wow, my entire life is lived in this thing called water that gives me you no know, life and like the equivalent of oxygen and all of that. And so that, that's what patriarchy is, to try to explain it to men and especially men who most benefit from, from patriarchy. Because I think all men think that they all benefit from patriarchy and they don't understand that many of them don't which is why I always say that feminism for me is the destruction of patriarchy. It's not just equality with men because there are so many men who aren't free, you know, because... They are because they are men who are black, indigenous or of color or they're men from working class backgrounds and don't have the, the, the affluence and the wealth or that they're disabled men or they're gay or bisexual men. Do you know what I mean? So there's all of these oppressions. And so I, I, I tell people to imagine patriarchy like an octopus. And the head of that octopus is patriarchy, and each one of the tentacles is one of the oppressions that patriarchy uses. Now, depending on you know how many of those oppressions affect you, you are going to be you know under more of a tighter control of patriarchy. Mm -hmm. But once you see patriarchy as that octopus, it becomes very obvious that we should all destroy patriarchy. You know, not just women, because patriarchy actually benefits very few people.
0: Yeah. I actually have, um, I've got sons who are twins. Um, They're 26 years old. They're both very gentle souls. Mm -hmm. And I think particularly Australia is a very blokey sort of country. Um, And both of them, we've had discussions about how they, they sort of don't really feel that in some ways they fit in as very creative, gentle young men. And I can see how, um it's it's damaged them it's damaged their confidence and and things like that because they're not so much into all the you know the football culture that's that's in that's in australia um i mean they're amazing I'm so happy to have sons like that you know yeah. who are yeah. uh, one's a musician one's a writer mm-hmm. um but i I can really see firsthand how damaging that is too so it's it's certainly it's about men too for sure. Oh. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, the patriarchal socialization that goes into it to create, you know, we now we, we have words for it, like or phrases for it, like toxic masculinity. Toxic. Yeah. Right. And just and the, the kind of expectations and the way that it pushes men into these very, very narrow confines of what it means to be a man. Mm-hmm. And it's and, and it, obviously it's much worse for women who are cis or trans or, you know, people who are non But But, you know, but there is a, there's this hierarchy of harm. Yeah that it yes. causes so many of us. And, and that's mm-hmm. why I think that's the importance of feminism, you know, and yeah. we always have to kind of like hammer home just how harmful patriarchy is mm-hmm. and, and the importance of dismantling it everywhere that we are. The
0: big elephant in the room for me, and I'm sure it is for you too, is two issues, which are race and class. I mean, obviously there's others, you know, mm-hmm. um, The LGBTQ and obviously the disability sphere are two other enormous spheres, but race and class are two really enormous things. I noticed that on the MFW page, the most pushback that we get by far is when we post something which is critical of white women. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I'm very well aware that 54% of white women voted for Trump. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure it's the same percentage or higher in Australia who voted for our terrible fascist government. Yes. Um, I've tried to educate myself quite a lot on how women um, women often vote with patriarchy on a lot of issues. White women do because, because they're living with their oppressor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, women are sort of the only the the main class group that actually lives with their 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 oppressor and marries their oppressor, if you like. So they align with those goals as well. And so, you know, that that obviously you know all this way more than I do. But the pushback that we get on the page from people saying not all white women, whenever mm-hmm. we post on these issues, is just overwhelming. I notice if we ever say something that's critical of white women, we might get out of Out of 120,000 people, we might get a few hundred who just flounce and walk away because they're like, you know, women, I think white women, and this is really true in Australia particularly, are very focused on patriarchy, very focused on oppression towards themselves, Mm -hmm. but a very large percentage, I don't know if it's more than 50%, but probably a lot more than 50% are folk. uh, refuse to see how their own behavior plays into that. Their own behavior often hurts women of color and queer women and disabled women. And I don't know, I don't even know if I'm asking a question at the moment. So I'm sorry about that. As I've told you the other day, I'm not a trained journalist, so I'm not really sure how to lead into these things. But if there's a way that you can, um, like I'm we're all racist, basically. I, I do believe that that we're, we're all uh, entrenched in sort of racist ideas. Um, and how, how do we start to move forward to start to get white women to try to see that they're part of the problem? I guess that's the question, because I am finding it really difficult even to get a lot of um obviously there's some amazing people on the mfw page who are totally on board and and doing their best and um in these areas but i just noticed that there's a huge percentage who just can't see that
1: white women are in any way part of the problem right does that make sense It, it does absolutely i mean and, and it, it's such an important and such it's like walking into a minefield because because of the hashtag not all women types you know or not yeah. all white women yeah and and because because so, for a lot of white women it's all about misogyny and that's it. It's all about, like you were saying, how patriarchy affects them and that's it. And they don't see, it's very difficult for them in the same way that I said, when we talk to men about patriarchy, it's like asking a fish about water. For a lot of white women, they don't see how they end up trumping their race over their gender and benefit from doing that. And they benefit from doing that because their proximity, like you said, they marry their their oppressor. And so they want their husbands or their brothers or their sons to continue to benefit from what patriarchy gives them because that benefit trickles down to them. And they don't see how in upholding, especially white supremacy, they are then hurting so many other women and people who are not white generally, including men, you know, and uh, and other people. Mm-hmm. So that that is such an important issue. And you know, in the US, when, during the insurrection on January the 6th, one of the things that, um, I, I know other people have written about it as well, but one of the things that I wanted to write about the most on my newsletter, Feminist Giant, mm-hmm. was the role of white women in the insurrection. I saw that, it was amazing. <laughs> and, and it shocked a lot of people because they didn't stop to think, you know, because in the United States, as I'm sure in many other countries, white supremacist violence is rarely taken seriously. So for the longest time in the U.S., it was uh, the, the, all the focus on terrorism of any kind was yeah. on Muslim terrorism, you know, profiling Muslims and that kind of stuff, Muslims inside the U.S. and outside the U.S. And the same in Australia, right? And so when the Christchurch massacre happened, much like, you know, when we have mass shootings in the U.S. or now the insurrection, people suddenly go, oh, how did we miss this? And they missed it because they don't, you know, they have refused to take White supremacist violence seriously. Mm. And if white supremacist violence by men is not taken seriously by women, it's taken even less seriously because white women historically have been given the presumption of innocence, you know, and in the United States, If you trace it all the way back to the days of slavery, white women were complicit. You know, Mm -hmm. white women are now, uh, in so many history books have shown us now, white women are, are known to have owned enslaved people. White women were right there side by side, with white men who also owned enslaved uh, pe- uh, people, men and women and children, and just like the complicity of white women because they recognized that it benefited them. So whether you look at it historically or whether you look at it in contemporary times, it's a really necessary subject to, to unpack. you have to. Mm-hmm. And so and I'm sure that there is a parallel discussion in Australia that needs to happen where you you point out like you said, the amount, the percentage of white women who vote, for white supremacy Mm -hmm. and then I think we begin to unpack that by you know in the past we would say why do women vote against their interest but they don't vote against their interest we have to start Mm -hmm. saying no they actually vote to maintain their interest because their interest is whiteness Mm -hmm. and upholding whiteness Mm -hmm. so I think one another way that we um, dismantle and unpack that is to include more and more black indigenous and women of color. So I'm glad that we're having this conversation because obviously I'm not white. And so when I say this, you know, one of the reasons that what I said on Q and A and I said it and there were other people of color too. Now, Naoki is an indigenous non-binary person. And there was also a Muslim woman, Hannah, who was a Muslim woman. So we are all three people of color and one person was indigenous and they were also non-binary, you know? If I if I was a a white woman who was saying what I said, I don't think it would have upset the people who complained to the ABC as much as the fact that I said it. Yeah, I'm saying it as a woman of color. I'm saying it as a woman of Muslim descent. And I'm saying it about white men and not just about Muslim men. Do you know what I mean? So if I had sat there and just talked about Muslim men in Egypt, being violent against women, Oh, yeah. they would have clapped for me. Yeah. They would have said, Mona, you're so brave. Oh, yeah. my God, you've got Mona exposing the men of our culture. Yeah. I came to Australia and I talked about white men. And I said, Scott Morrison is a white supremacist. Yeah. And they were like, oh, my God, how dare you? Do you know what I mean? So, well, you, you know, sorry, you, you know the woman who's been one of the
0: most vilified in Australia is Yasmin Abdel-Mageed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, she basically had to leave Australia. She had to leave the country just for one, it was a four-word tweet, but people took it that she was criticising Australian soldiers. Other yeah. people have said far worse, you know, yeah. not that it wasn't bad
1: anyway what she was saying. It was true, yeah. like what but you but said was black. true. Yeah, but she's a black and Muslim woman, right? Yeah. So, so and that, that's another way of also pointing out to white women who are in denial Mm-hmm. Of how their whiteness benefits them is that you say, look, look what happened when Yasmin had to leave the country. Look what mm-hmm. happened when Mona and Ayoke and, and and you know all of them. when it's a black indigenous or woman of color who is saying this. Look at the ramifications and the price that that woman ends up paying or that non-binary indigenous person ends up paying. Mm. And compare that to when a white woman. Now, obviously, white women will experience misogyny. Look what happened to your former prime minister. Mm. But I'm saying that there is much, a much bigger space that is given to white women. So include and center black, indigenous and women of color as much as possible Mm. so that white women are then confronted with a discomfort that is necessary to change. Because, mm. you know, I recognize that when, when I was speaking on the ABC, you know, there, there's an immediate, immediacy to television because it's there in your living room, right? Mm. When there's a woman in your, on your TV screen uh, in your home going, fuck this and fuck that and fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. And how many rapists must we kill? Yeah. That makes you uncomfortable. But that yeah. is a good discomfort, you know, because change comes about from discomfort. And when that discomfort comes from someone you're not used to hearing from, Black, indigenous, and people of color, that discomfort is multiplied mm. because you're not used to having a person from those places make mm. you uncomfortable. And that's Basically, why the white women on Mad Fucking Witches leave because you're making them uncomfortable yeah. because you're, you're insisting that they confront the privilege that they have. And they don't see that privilege. They don't want they to just see misogyny. Exactly. But why? What I see those people as,
0: and if they watch this broadcast, some of them will leave again probably because they won't like me saying this, but any, it's got to be said, I see them as so hypocritical because all the time on Mad Witches, every woman on the page is really on board with the, you know, that white men need to see what they're doing and, you know, if a man comes on the page and says, we're not all like that, everyone will jump on him and say, you know, that's a not all men comment, don't do that. So exactly. So we... We want men to see their privilege, to accept it, to understand it, to 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 see that they're not necessarily included when we say men, you know, if they're not doing that, then then you know they, they're still obviously benefiting from patriarchy, but if they're trying, then we're not including them in, you know. But we want women, white women, to also be able to say well, yeah, I'm a white woman and I'm probably doing things that harm and I probably have done things that harm and I need to look at that. So the hypocrisy of it really grinds my gears that that they can see it when it comes to wanting men to change, but
1: they won't change themselves. Yeah, yeah. And and it's all about putting them face-to-face, confronting them with a privilege that they refuse to see. So, yes, of course, they're affected by misogyny, as we all are as women, but they have the privilege of not having to deal with race, and if mm. they're women who are affluent and come from, you know, upper class or upper middle class, they don't have to. Con- they also don't face the the oppressions that someone from working a working class background have to also confront. You know, mm. so when and and you know, we all have we all live with various forms of privilege. So I have privilege that comes from being able bodied. You know, mm. and it's impossible for me to be able to imagine what it's like to go through the world in in, in the body of a disabled person. So mm. I have to confront that privilege that I have mm. by centering the experiences of disabled people, you know, because mm. they're going to, the, the tentacles of that octopus that I was talking about called patriarchy, they're also going to have that tentacle of ableism mm. that I don't have to confront. So I think it's really important that we make ourselves uncomfortable through, listening to and centering the experiences of people who are squeezed between more of those tentacles of the octopus than we are, because we always think that we are the biggest victims, but there will be someone else who will be squeezed even tighter.
0: Yeah. Australia, and I'm assuming this is probably true in in America and Canada too, Australia is, even the whole feminist movement is probably controlled by a lot of (laughs) white women. Um, and one of the things that I've – because I – I think because I come from a, a very working-class background, I, I, I don't um, – I, I think I can see a little bit more clearly some – you know, most of them are sort of inner-city, I was going to say up, upper-class or middle-class women um, who've got to positions where they get to speak about feminism and sort of control the narrative – and it really bothers me things like, um, you know, if there's a feminist conference, you know, they they, they don't have childcare. It's mm-hmm. probably in a place and a time that working-class women can't get to. Um, yeah. Working-class and lower-class women are, are trying so hard just to look after their kids and put food on the table that yeah. they can't go to a pay a thousand dollars to go to a conference in the middle of melbourne for example um even down to things like you know that there might not be a lift in the building you know for someone in a wheelchair there's all that as well but certainly um there are people who are starting to address some of those things Mm -hmm. but but the working class thing the class issue i see it almost totally absent from mainstream feminist discussions in australia
1: is that true over there as well. It has been for a long time. And I think that that you know that's one of the reasons that feminism has to just be shaken up, you know, on a consistent basis. And when we hear from, you, do you remember a few years ago, there was a book that came out in this movement called Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg, who was <laughs> on the board of Facebook, you know? And like, you know, this experience of a woman on the board of directors of, yeah. you know, this massive, massive, you know, tech giant is yeah. not going to be the experience of the janitor who is working at Facebook or yeah. factory workers on Amazon, you know, who are barely absolutely. given a break, you know, to go and pee, you know, they're not, how are they going to lean in with the yeah. richest men in the history of humanity, you know? Yeah. Jeff, what's his name? Bezos or yeah. Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk, you know, all of these super billionaires, super billionaire white men, you know? Mm. So class is absolutely and um, central to any discussion we have about feminism, because then you're talking about, especially during the pandemic, you know, because during this pandemic, to be able to have a conversation where we're talking to each other from home, where, you know, I'm lucky enough, privileged enough to be working from home. When I know that there are, what we call in North America, essential workers. I don't know if you call them essential workers. Yeah, yeah. Who are out there every day, you know, in, the, in grocery stores, endangering their lives so that we can continue to eat. And yet they're the ones who are paid the least, So they're the most essential, but they're the least valued. They're Mm. the ones who are totally forgotten when it comes to, so we're still debating in the US and it's fucking ridiculous. A $15 minimum 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 wage, you know? What are we doing during a pandemic where essential workers are are basically keeping us alive? Mm. So, you know, that's the class aspect. And then the class aspect in North America, and I'm sure it's the same in Australia, is often hand in hand with the race aspect. Because when you're talking about essential workers now in the US and the pandemic, the pandemic has disproportionately affected black people, indigenous people and people yeah. of colour. Yeah. And especially women from those communities, you know. So when you look you, you you look at the pandemic and what the pandemic has done is it's taken all the inequalities that we were comfortable ignoring before and has exacerbated them. Because in the United States, the highest death tolls have been disproportionately in those communities, black, indigenous and people of colour. It's you the same know? here. It's terrible. And then when you look Mm. at also rates of incarceration, the rates of incarceration for indigenous people in Australia are similar to the rates of incarceration for black indigenous and people of color in the US. So on every level, you're talking Mm. about groups of people who fall through every crack that as feminists, we should be saying no, this mm. cannot continue to happen. And that's why we have to insist that feminism tackle more than misogyny, because it's it's about much more than just misogyny. And this is where white women have to stop stop talking and listen. Stop yeah. talking, listen to indig- Indigenous people like Nyokai on the QA episode and other Indigenous women. There was an Indigenous woman there during the QA episode uh, who talked about the death of her mother, mu- um, police brutality, and how the police killed her mother in custody. Yeah. You know? Indigenous women's experiences must be centred in mm. any conversation about feminism in Australia, as they must in the US. And I think this is this is why feminism has to be shaken up on a regular basis. And we have to ask who are the voices we hear and to whose benefit. Yes.
0: Yeah, I I totally agree with that. Um, one of the things that the other things white, white women say is um, if let's say there's something in the media about one of the Australian states or the federal government trying to go backwards on abortion law, for example, and white women will start saying, oh, we're going back to, you know, the Handmaid's Tale type stuff. And it that makes me angry because um, Margaret Atwood wrote that book saying that what she talked about in the book was already happening in lots of parts of the world and still is, and we're lucky enough in Australia and a lot of other um, Western countries not to have most of those things happening to us now, although, you know, obviously we're, we're moving closer in some of those ways. Um, and I feel like saying to white women, you know, you're terrified of going more towards more oppression for women in terms of that handmaid's tale stuff, but you're not really fighting for women in other countries who are still facing that. But then you run it up against the problem of um, if you start focusing or trying to focus as feminists on things that are wrong in countries like Saudi Arabia and, and places mm-hmm. like that, you get acu- you c- you can get accused of being, or, or even in Australia with Indigenous women's problems, mm-hmm. you can get accused of being sort of. Um, almost patriarchal over those people and and trying to say, oh, we're all right, but you're the people with the yeah. problems. Yeah. So there's a bit of a dichotomy there that is not always easy to solve. How, yeah. how, do, how do we start talking more about those sort of international problems but without right. trying to come across as, you know, the white women
1: trying to save the world yeah. type of thing? Right. And yeah, I so- think it comes...
0: Go on. The, the white
1: savior complex, right? The yeah. white savior who goes yeah. out there and saves everyone else. Well, you know, th- that is a really important issue because, and you know, I often tell people of something that happened when I was promoting my first book and I was in Dallas in Texas, right? And a woman stood up in the audience and said, you know, I lived in Egypt for a few years and I love Egypt. And how can I help women in Egypt fight female genital mutilation? And then I said to her, listen, First of all there's nothing you can do for women in Egypt because women in Egypt are fighting they're already fighting but I want to ask you a question why are you focusing and why do you want to help women thousands of miles away in Egypt when here in Texas almost all the the clinics that provide abortion care have shut down do you not see that women right here your neighbors basically your women here in Texas need your help just as much as you think the women in Egypt need help and I think for that, that white saviorism is often driven by it's easier to focus on someone else's problems because you don't know the complications that, that underlie those problems. Whereas the problems at home, they're very difficult, they, you, they, they take a lot of time and they also insist that you confront your own privilege at home. So that woman, this white woman in Texas, Oh, another white woman sitting next to her said to her, you know, we have so, the militarism and the religious fundamentalism here in Texas makes this one of the worst states in the United States of America to be a woman. Fight right here, why do you wanna go and fight in Egypt? So when it comes to abortion, for example, one of, one of the things that I remind people is that, like you said, Margaret Atwood said everything in the, in the book the Handmaid's Tale had already happened. And she said that a lot of what she included in the book used to happen to enslaved black women during oh the time of slavery. So, so when the show was made from the book, a lot of black women in the US were telling white women were saying, oh my God, that's going to happen to us soon under Donald Trump. Black women were saying, hello, that already happened to us. <laughs> you, you know, that's not going to happen to us. You have to remember what, you know, your ancestors did to mine. And even more, more than that, in the, in, I know in, in Australia, you've got growing religious fundamentalism that is going to affect your reproductive rights, right? In the United States, because of the growing influence of Christian evangelical uh, beliefs, reproductive rights have whittled away. And what that ends up doing is it has created a hierarchy over who has access to reproductive rights. So this white woman in Texas, who is probably unaware of just how almost impossible it is to get an abortion. A working class woman is not unaware of that. A black woman is not unaware of that. A woman of color is not unaware of that, but privileged white women don't have to experience that because they have the time and the money to get an abortion when they want Mm -hmm. for for a working class woman or a woman of color who like, you know, all the things you said about feminist conferences to travel, to take time off from work, to go, to drive, you know, hours and hours away, to check into a hotel so that you can spend the night, so you can go to a clinic the next morning. Who are you going to leave your children with? So then the question then becomes, for whom is abortion still possible in the United States? Even though it's it's still legal, technically Mm. speaking in so many places, and it's probably, you know, it's been fought really hard. It's technically impossible for black women, indigenous women and working class women and women of color, so that's that's how it's really important that women focus locally on the feminist fight in the understanding that when you focus locally and domestically, you are he- helping the global feminist fight. Right. So for those who want to help women in other countries like Saudi Arabia or Egypt or, or Afghanistan or anywhere, my biggest recommendation would be to contact your elected official and to insist that your tax dollars Are not used by your government to uphold misogyny and other forms of patriarchy in other parts of the world, you know? Because there are trust that there are women in other parts of the world who are fighting that feminist fight. And what they need is they need the United States and Australia and other Western allies to stop upholding their dictators and propping them up and selling them weapons and giving them money that are that is making their lives terrible. And their feminist fight is helped when you fight for feminism at home. Because when you fight at feminism at home, you recognize then like that woman in Texas did not recognize that she has so much privilege as a white woman that she's incapable. You know, I have all these women who come to my talks in New York or anywhere else and they're like, oh my God, what a, what, a, what my, what's my daughter gonna do if, if, Roe v. Wade and abortion becomes illegal. I say to her if for so many women it's technically already illegal, you know? Yeah. That speaks to a level of privilege that has made her completely oblivious to the reality on the ground. So always recognize that there are women in your own neighborhood, in your own state, in your own country who could use that allyship Mm. that you don't have to export and that won't make you a white savior. But to avoid being a white savior, say when it comes to indigenous women and women of color in Australia, the best way to ensure that you don't do that is to center indigenous women and to ask indigenous women, how best can I be, you know, more and more people are not using ally anymore. They're using this great word word, accomplice because you want to be an accomplice in dismantling patriarchy. Mm -hmm. So for sure there are Indigenous feminist groups in Australia and for sure they are there and willing to talk to you about Mm -hmm. the best way that you can be an accomplice in their fight without swooping in and saying, I have it sorted. I have all the (laughs) solutions. I will rescue you from whatever, you know? Yeah. No, of course.
0: I don't know if you heard the story about um, in Tasmania, I think it was last year, A woman who worked for a cricket organisation was sacked because she tweeted on a private account, nothing to do with the job, but on her private account about the fact that uh, Tasmania had shut down all their public abortion clinics. I think they still had one at a private hospital, but... They all the public, you know, government funded clinics were shut, and I believe they still are to this day. So anyone who wants an abortion from Tasmania, obviously it's an island, they have to fly to Melbourne. Um, and that's just you know how shocking that is. And she was trying to raise awareness of that and she got
1: sacked for it. Wow. Well, see, that's patriarchy at work. And you know, and everything I said about women in the US who are unable to access abortion applies to Tasmania. Who can afford to fly from Tasmania to Melbourne, take yeah. that time out, buy a plane ticket. Who are they going to leave their kids with? So there, there are issues in Australia that yeah. deserve a it's feminist satisfying. fight before yeah. the feminist fight needs to go somewhere else. You know, but it's it, it's much easier to point over there and say, "Oh my God, it's so bad over there." And then white patri white supremacist patriarchy in Australia, as it does in the U.S. and Canada, will also often say you should be grateful you live in Australia and not Saudi Arabia, you know, to get you to shut up. Yeah. So they will lecture you about how great it is to live in Australia because, mm-hmm. you know, it could be much worse. You could live in Saudi Arabia. And, and yet when a woman speaks up about how uh, abortion access has been lost in Tasmania, she will be fired, you know, yeah. because she's talking about issues at home and not talking about over there. It's much easier to talk about over there, you know. So you fix the problems in your own country, and that
0: it helps put pressure on other countries. It's the same way our own disgusting Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, right now. Since Trump was voted out of office, I think there's there's the most enormous pressure already coming to bear on Scott Morrison, who's a huge Trump fan and ne- never denied that. Um, you know, uh, Australia's even worse than the United States on issues like climate change and those yeah. um, refugees and similar things. Um, mm-hmm. And so now Scott Morrison is being, he's now compared to um, Joe Biden, who obviously we all know is not perfect in a lot of ways, but, you know, is a lot better than Trump. Um, yeah. <laughs> and Scott, the, the pressure already in only a couple of weeks on Morrison to start acting on climate
1: and things is just mm-hmm. enormous, you know, that that's how Good. it works, isn't it? yeah no absolutely and, and, you know i i fully believe the local fight strengthens the global fight and that's how we become and we also inspire each other you know jenny a few weeks so uh, um, argentina in a historic move decriminalized abortion and that has inspired polish women who are in, engaged in their own fight against their fascist far-right, far-right yeah. government that has basically banned almost, it's an almost total near ban on abortion. And, uh, and Polish women have been long protesting against it. Last year, they were protesting. They started yeah. a revolution, basically. So uh, it was a couple of weeks ago, they were marching in their streets, wearing green handkerchiefs, in honor of the Argentinian movement that that pushed for the decriminalization of abortion. And they said, you know, we're doing this because we were so inspired by the Argentinians and the Argentinian feminists said, if we could, we would have come and marched with you. So when we see each other's fights, we inspire and we strengthen each other. So when we see Australian feminists fighting against you know, those restrictive abortion laws, that will strengthen and inspire Polish women, that will strengthen and inspire US women. Mm. And all of those local fights Mm. plug us into this global feminist movement. And that's what I fully believe, that you have a fight right there where you are and you are important right there where you are.
0: Thanks. Yeah, I like to think so.
1: One of the things we're really
0: pleased about is um, that what, What MFW actually did, for the first three or four years we existed, it was really just, you know, posting on issues of feminism and violence against women and things like that. But then in August last year, um, no, sorry, August 2019, we started a campaign against a guy called Alan Jones for all the terrible misogynistic and racist things that he'd said and we ran consumer boycotts. So we, um, as a group, wrote to all the companies that were advertising on his radio show and told them that we wouldn't buy their products and services while they, as we say, they fund the lies and fund the hate. And by May 2020, he was sacked from that show. And that was a huge achievement to us because we got him off the air. So now we've sort of graduated um, you know, obviously the witches wanted us to keep going because that's actually a concrete thing that we, can, that we can do. It's all very fun, like just yelling on Twitter, but it's ultimately not that productive. So now we see ourselves as a campaign group and we're yeah. going after, um, we're, we're now running a campaign against Rupert Murdoch. He's our main um, protagonist. But um, a couple of weeks ago, um, and this follows years of, uh, huge action by Indigenous groups in Australia and others uh, talking about a guy called Eddie McGuire, who who's a football commentator and a, he was the president of one of their biggest football clubs and has just been saying terrible racist, sexist and homophobic things for 10 or 12 years. He's a bit like Alan Jones. Um, he said that a woman journalist, he would pay to see her drown. Uh-huh. Um wasn't he he called, just fired. He just got well. He just got fired uh, the day before yesterday. Ah, yeah. So he's so, the one I've been seeing on social media. Okay. Yeah, Eddie Eddie wow. Maguire, So he um um and we don't claim a huge part in that because as I said, there's been a number of groups over the last few years um uh you know helping with that campaign a, a group of seventy Indigenous uh, people signed an open letter that was sent to him or to the club um, that really had a big impact. But what we started doing a couple of weeks ago was, everything we do is is this sort of consumer boycott route where we write to the um, Collingwood Football Club have sponsors and partners. So we started writing to them saying, you know, Nike, Subway, um, big insurance company, um, Emirates Airways, There's about a dozen big companies. And all our witches started writing to them saying, We won't use your services. And I think mm-hmm. Nike in particular has been known for trying to do some action in the, the racist, the race space in the last few years uh, with Colin Kaepernick and things like that. Um, yeah. And we like to think that that had a bit of an effect in helping, helping mm-hmm. get him sacked because that's what ta- it's money that talks, isn't it? Um, yeah. It's money, white, powerful white men. Mm-hmm. The only language they seem to understand is money. Yeah. Um, and tr- attempting to take away their income or their money um, mm-hmm. frightens them more than anything else. So that's the way in which we're, you know, we're, we're quite proud that we're trying to trying to change things in our own little way in Australia. Yeah. And we're seeing in the U.S. Um, just in the last few weeks this fantastic uh, move that that companies like Dominion are suing Rupert yeah. Murdoch. Fox, yes. That's yes. yeah. That's yeah
1: fantastic. Yeah. We're we're watching yeah. all of that. Fox News fired their most popular anchor, Lou Dobbs, yeah. because yeah. he's one of those named in so it, it was it's Dominion and there's another um online voting um thing yeah, I've, I've forgotten, forgotten the name. Yeah. So because of their what and it's like two billion dollars this three, four, three or something like that. And Fox News fired the guy who brings them the most eyes on the screen. Yeah. It's been incredible. Yeah. Good. So we're yeah. we're watching that. That
0: that could maybe bankrupt Rupert Burdock and you He's know if he, um, <laughs> if he can't operate, then we we wouldn't have conservative governments in Australia. I mean it's only him yeah. that, that causes those governments. Um yeah. I wish I should let you go in a minute because oh, this has just been amazing. My head's spinning. I just love everything that you say. One of the things the questions that I got and I really wanted to ask you this as well was, um, how do you reconcile that you're, you're fighting for women? your your main, obviously your platforms are you know race issues and LGBTQ issues but your main issue is misogyny and patriarchy Um, and and obviously they're all tied together. But how do you reconcile how exhausting it is for you to fight misogyny on behalf of white women and yet white women are in some ways hurting you? Does that make sense as a question?
1: How do you reconcile that? Well, you know, I tell you, um, I, I moved, to, I moved back to Egypt in 2013, and I lived there until 2017. For, for the Egyptian revolution, because the, the, the revolution I believe continues, but um, the revolution is usually associated with the year 2011, I mean, yeah, and we're now celebrating the 10th tenth anniversary. But I moved back in 2013 because I wanted to be involved with feminism on the ground and write my book and fight the, re- the regime directly, and also tell the regime that they didn't terrify me because in 2011, they broke my arms and sexually assaulted me during a protest in November, right? So I moved back to say, Fuck you, I survived, I'm back, you know? And you're not gonna terrorize me away from my own country. So I lived there until 2017, and then I often tell people, and this is only semi-jokingly, Jenny, but, but there is a kernel of truth to it. I moved back to the US to fight Donald Trump because Donald Trump was the president at the time because he he got elected at the end of 2016. And I moved back in 2017 and Donald Trump would call the fascist dictator of Egypt, my favorite dictator. So I had a fascist dictator in my country of birth and a fascist who wanted to be a dictator in my country of naturalization. So I was like, you know what? Donald Trump has much more power than than Sisi in Egypt. So I'm gonna go back to the US and fight the head of the Hydra, you know, like the octopus, Donald Trump. But I also say, again, like I keep saying semi-jokingly, I said I'm moving back to the US to rescue white women because I'm now doing the reverse white saviorism. <laughs> I moved back to the US to save white women. <laughs> yeah. From, from their, their refusal to see their complicity in white supremacy, their complicity in white supremacist patriarchy. Because, mm-hmm. you know, all the statistics, like we've talked about, you know, show us that they consistently vote for the white supremacists. Donald Trump in the presidency, Roy Moore in Alabama, Brian Kemp against Stacey Abrams in Georgia. Yeah. You know, we have the numbers to back us up. Yeah. And then I said, you know, I've come back to save you because clearly, you know, white feminism has failed you. Because, because look, look what happened. We, we keep losing you because you keep choosing your race over your gender. So Mm -hmm. Mona's come back now to save you as the intersectional feminist giant. And you know, and I say this deliberately because I know that I piss off a lot of white women. You know, when I point out their complicity in white supremacy. And then I know this pisses them off, this arrogance of I'm coming to save you because I'm now reversing the mirror because they constantly want to come and save Egyptian women. And I'm like, fuck you, stop yeah. doing the white supremacy and leave Egyptian women to us, you know? So yeah. I, I do all of that, but I, I do it intentionally because last year when Donald Trump nominated and successfully, Amy, Cone, uh, Amy Comey Barrett, mm. See, I keep forgetting her name because we jokingly call her now Amy Coney Island, you know, after Coney Island in New York. <laughs> but her name is Amy, Amy Coney Barrett, right? Yeah. So after he successfully nominated her, I wrote an essay asking if Amy Coney Barrett was a Muslim, you know, what, what, what? how would people would have reacted to her, you know? And obviously she would have been called a zealot because she mm. is and she mm. would never never have been nominated for or win a lifetime position on the highest court in the land, you know? So, so I recognize that. So first of all, my fight is against patriarchy and all its oppression. So I go in there and I'm, I'm determined to basically kill that octopus called patriarchy. And I recognize that in so doing, it will remove some of the oppressions that hurt white women. But I also recognize that white women are fighting me back and the way that I fight back and I, force them to recognize their complicity is through reminding them of the hypocrisy and the double standards. So I write an essay titled If Amy Coney Barrett Was a Muslim, and I tell them white women, so white liberal women in the United States are more concerned about Muslim women, preferably over there somewhere far away so they can go save them, than they are about, you know, the, the, the misogyny that they have to fight in their own homes and in their own lives. And then conservative white women, they pathologize in Muslim women, the very things they accept about their own lives. Because you know, conservative religion anywhere deals with women the same way. But Mm. conservative white women in the US are very happy with obeying their husband, with having their husband as the head of the household, with all of this bullshit. Mm. But then they point to Muslim women and say, ah, look at Muslim women. And, oh, their husbands make them do. And I'm and, and like, are you fucking kidding me? It's the yeah. exact same thing, you know? Yeah. So, so that's what I do. So what I do is I reverse that arrogance of the saviorism, just to show white women how absurd it is to think that you can go save someone when you're not even saving your own self. But that I also show, it, show that what I'm doing is part of my fight against patriarchy generally. Because one of those tentacles in the octopus is white supremacy. White supremacy and racism. So whether white women like it or not, my fight is against that octopus. My f- and my fight will be successful because I will continue fighting, and I'm yeah. a tenacious optimist. And part of my success will be liberating them too, whether mm. they like it or not. You know, <laughs> because getting rid of that patriarchy, that that the octopus will liberate all of us. Mm. So it, it's a very complicated fight, and I I don't I don't need the friendship or the support of white women, but I do need white women to understand that they are complicit in white supremacist patriarchy. And I insist that instead they become accomplices Mm -hmm. to the fight against patriarchy because that fight will liberate us all. And they are selfishly invested in their whiteness and the privilege that whiteness brings them. Do you think it helps that what what we've all seen,
0: even I mean, this has been going on for years. Obviously, this white supremacist stuff from the shooter in New Zealand and who came from Australia, um, you know, to to other things. But now, with the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol and 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 some things that are happening in Australia now too, um, that white people or some white people are starting to see that you know that's a, that's a, these are terrorist organizations who are worse than what we've all historically called
1: terrorist organizations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, I'm hoping they do because, you know, one of the things that is coming out more and more is how central QAnon, you know, this conspiracy movement mm-hmm. has been to upholding white supremacy and to the insurrection because for the longest time, so QAnon, you know, and I know that the, one, of the, one of the aides to the wife of your prime minister, is a, a QAnon person, right? Because yeah. Australians have been telling me on social media. Yeah. So in the United States, you know, before the insurrection, this is how QAnon was reported on in that. So first of all, in 2019, the FBI called QAnon a terrorist threat. So it's a very serious thing, right? But the way that US media, including L magazine, including Slate, including the Atlantic magazine, they would look at it as basic, basically a bunch of suburban white or white suburban women, mostly mothers, because this movement now, even though it was started by this person, we don't know who it was, we don't know who Q is, but someone online, the movement is now largely driven by white suburban women. So, this is a movement that is deemed a terrorist threat by the FBI, that is driven largely by white suburban women. And yes. we don't talk about that. No. And then- Elle magazine covered it as the real housewives of QAnon. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> this is a terrorist mess. I so shouldn't mean, be laughing, but yeah. I know, it's absurd, isn't it? Yeah. Because they're white women, they, they never held up and yeah. judged by the standards that I would be as a Muslim woman. You know? Of course. So they, they got away with what I call fuckery. They got yeah. away with so much fuckery yeah. by virtue of being white women. Because yeah. white women are presumed to be the most innocent and they weaponize their innocence, you know, Do they ever? especially white mothers, you know. Yeah. So oh. because of all of most of um, QAnon was driven by this thing about children, you know, this this ridiculous conspiracy about pedophilia and child sex trafficking. Yeah. They were able to use legitimate concerns over children which concern mothers everywhere. But Mm. this is a particularly white mother thing, you know? Mm. And because of that, because they were white mothers, the US media largely just looked at them as, oh, these mothers who happen to believe in a conspiracy theory and never complete the sentence and say it's a fucking terrorist threat. And then the insurrection happened. And then you see all of these white women of QAnon at the Capitol, you know, being involved in a terrorist uh, violent attack, Yeah. An attempted coup. And then I think finally now some people we still have to drag the rest are going, oh my God, you know, Mm. after all, it took a fucking insurrection to Mm. get them to recognize, you know, so this is why white women have to understand that their whiteness has allowed them to get away with so much. And Mm. that's why we insist on saying white women you have to understand how complicit you are in white supremacy and its violence. It's going yeah. to make some of them uncomfortable, but too fucking bad because yeah. otherwise we get a violent movement that goes to the U S this is the most powerful country in the world. And look what happened. They were yeah. going out there to kill elected officials. Yeah. Oh, that's it's it, yeah, it's all true.
0: And the biggest fight we had on our page was the day that we said, that um, we put up a post saying that we um, would not argue against the use of the word Karen for white women. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an America. That term was invented in a, in America, but it also has it resonates in Australia because there was this there was this incident in a in a town in Moldura where I was brought up, uh, coincidentally, um, where. A, an Indigenous couple lived in a home and had an Aboriginal flag flying. And the woman from next door came in and tried to rip down the flag. Um, but the woman who came in to rip down the flag was a white woman named Karen. Thanks. Oh my and God. on the video of it, the Indigenous man is heard to say, oh, that flag's too strong for you, Karen. And that like went all around Australia. It was fabulous. And Indigenous women and other women of colour in Australia want to be able to use the term Karen because they want to be able to put that type of woman into a group, the kind of woman who, you know, we've all seen those videos of Mm -hmm. women calling the cops on someone just walking down the street, you know, in in America. That happens here too, Um, you know, the the police women calling the cops on an Indigenous person in a shop who looks like they might be going to shoplift or something, but, you know, all that kind of thing is going on here too. And we put up this post saying we are not going to stop people using the term Karen because there has to be a word for that kind of woman. Um, If you're not behaving like that, it doesn't apply to you. Exactly. There has to be a a, a way to define that. Well, you have never seen such a furor um, over women saying, you know, like, what what they say. I mean, obviously, some of them are called Karen, so they're personally insulted. But yeah. which I do sort of get on one level. Um, but what they're saying is, why can't we just fight men? Like, why do you ha- why are you turning on women? This yeah. isn't fair. This is the page that's about women, and you're now turning on women.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. what we. Do. I, well, see, I, I heard that when I wrote my essays recently about the white women of the insurrection, and and I would, you know, people white women would write to me and say, "You're just doing the patriarchy's bidding. You're <laughs> just focus- instead of focusing on men, you're focusing on on white women." And my point all along has been, and this is, I think, what drives you know the need to have a word like Karen to explain this, is that. Like I said earlier, white supremacist violence is rarely taken seriously, and it's taken even less seriously when it's committed by women, because white women get away with so much. And you know, in the way that I said at the beginning of our conversation about how men are socialized into this incredible sense of entitlement, so are white women. And I think white women don't want to acknowledge that. They don't want to admit that because they just want to point at the entitlement that men have. And it's possible to see both. It's Mm. possible to see that yes, men are entitled to, or are taught, they're entitled to so much, but it's also possible to see that white women are also taught to be entitled to so much, which is where this calling the cops and endangering the lives of black indigenous and people of color are. Mm. And you know, like you're saying, if that doesn't apply to you, let let it go because mm. it does apply to other white women. Mm. And you know I'm a big believer in discomfort. Those women who walk away because they're uncomfortable, trust in that you have put into their mind something that they don't want to acknowledge, but is not gonna go away. So even if they walk away, that discomfort is necessary for change because no change comes about through comfort. You know. Mm. Revolutions don't come about because we wake up one day and go, oh, we're so comfortable, let's change everything. That's not how change happens, you know. Change yeah. happens because we're uncomfortable or we made someone feel uncomfortable because mm-hmm. that discomfort means that their privilege is being questioned and mm-hmm. they're not accustomed, as white women, to have that privilege challenge. They like mm-hmm. to think that they're the victims, not the privileged ones.
0: Mm. And the next time someone challenges them, they might think a little bit more and then the next time a little bit more. and One day, yeah, you might... They might actually stop and really think about it.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, because, I mean, if we want to dismantle patriarchy, we have to dismantle it from all the ways that it comes in. And Mm. white women, we know, uphold patriarchy and many of its oppressions because it benefits them, because Mm. their whiteness protects them or they think their whiteness protects them. It Mm. certainly benefits the men in their lives, and by proximity they benefit too. Mm. So some people you'll just have to let go. Yeah. It's so important to focus this because everyone, we need everyone on board and mm-hmm. white women cannot be given a pass because they have so much privilege and they have to start spending that privilege to fight against patriarchy and the ways that it harms all of us.
0: Yeah. Look, I, I could talk to you for hours, Mona, but we <laughs> we better let you go. Um, the, the, it's just amazing. I just admire you so much. You, you're one of the, probably the feminist I admire most of almost anyone on the planet. Thank you, um, Jenny. That means a lot. Thank you so much. No, you honestly, you're very welcome. You, you're so brave. You're so willing to say it like it is. Um, and that's incredible. And just for, for everyone watching out there, please, if you want to learn more, if you want to grow as a, as a feminist and as a woman, Please uh, buy Mona's books. I know it's um, Headscarves and Hymen's was the first one. And then I think the recent one that I'm about halfway through, and I think every single sentence in the book, I'm like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> like, yeah, I think that, I think that. Um, seven Necessary Sins. But then you've also got your writing Um let just skip my, what's it called? It's, it's all just, on
1: Feminist, Feminist Giant. If Feminist Giant. FeministGiant.com. That's where all my writing goes.
0: Yeah. And then also if they follow you on Twitter, they'll get that content anyway. Yes. Um, and yeah, I just encourage everyone to do that. And we're, we're so um, grateful for your time and keep fighting. And please um, keep yourself safe from the virus over there. Thank um, you. Yeah, we have a long way to
1: go. You guys did a good job. <laughs>
0: Well, we've had a little outbreak in Victoria again just this week, but um, okay. um, we think the government will, will, will get it under control again. We've, we, we always want to stress this is our state governments who are doing this, not yeah. our useless yeah. federal government.
1: Yeah, no, I um, hear you.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I hope you, you keep yourself safe and please keep on with your work and
1: we're, we're all behind you so much. Thank you, Jenny. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for giving me this platform. And I hope that all your audience, you know, on whatever platform they come to um, find this inspiring and 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 makes them want to be accomplices in all these fights. And I send you all my love and solidarity. And I end as I began with Fuck the Patriarchy. Fuck the Patriarchy.
0: I can get behind that. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mona. Have, Thank have you, a good Jenny. evening. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.